You're listening to Dietitians Only, a podcast from Dietitians On Demand, created by dietitians for dietitians. Can we say dietitian one more time? You bet we will. In 20 minutes or less, we'll delight your ears with conversations only a dietitian could love. If KCALs, bowel movements, and PES statements are part of your everyday conversations, this podcast is for you. Yes, we're going there. And no, we're not shy about it. Welcome to Dietitians Only, the new podcast by Dietitians On Demand. I'm Sarah Glanz. I'm the corporate dietitian here at Dietitians On Demand. You've probably heard my voice over the years on some of our webinars, and I'm joined by Lindell Schuster. Hey, everyone. I'm Lindell, and I am the director of account management here at Dietitians On Demand. And you might have heard my voice if you've ever applied for one of our positions to work with us as a consultant dietitian. So uh, if, if you did and you know there's a chance you might have talked to me. So otherwise, if not, it's, I'm, I'm glad to be here and I look forward to uh, hearing more about today's episode. All right, well, let's get started. So we're gonna kick it off today with another dietitian win. Um, this one was more of a team effort and it actually happened when I was on a travel assignment with DOD. So I was placed at an acute care facility and we were really short staffed. So there were spots for four full-time dietitians. And when I got there, there was only one full-time dietitian. And then they had two part-time DOD consultants sort of making up the second full-time person. And then I became the third full-time person. So we were still short one whole person. Um, and I remember my very first day, I screened for 33 patients. I had 33 patients on my list. And so needless to say, we were really struggling. Um, and in the dietitian's office, there was this big whiteboard. And on it, they would write the names of the patients who had active calorie counts. And if you've never worked in an acute care facility, um, a calorie count, basically you're writing down everything a patient's eating and drinking for the whole day. It's a real pain in the you know what. Um, so if you're like me, you can agree that calorie counts are a big waste of time. Um, you know, if you're concerned that the patient's not eating enough, then why don't you just go on and do something instead of waiting three days and then doing something? Um, so we were so behind seeing patients that we that actually needed our help. So I told one of the other DOD consultants that we were just gonna put a stop to this. <laughs> so from then on, anytime a calorie count was ordered, we, call, we would call the physician, uh, we would talk to him or her and try to talk them out of it. And most of the time we were pretty successful. Um, so slowly they started to dwindle and then eventually we didn't have any at all. And so that, Lindell, was our dietitian win. Yeah, I love it. That is definitely a dietitian win. Um, anytime that I think a win is just anytime that you would would feel comfortable enough and compelled enough to call up another uh, member of the healthcare team, particularly like the physician that was doing the ordering. So I love hearing that. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. So without further ado, Sarah, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, let's get started. All right. So let's get started with today's episode. I'm always excited to hear what kind of exciting clinical topics we're going to dive into. So what are we talking about today, Sarah? 
Well, today we um, have another ultra clinical topic on tap, of course. Uh, so today we're actually discussing something called hypothermia protocol. That sounds cool. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> the dietitians may know hypothermia protocol by another name, right, Sarah? That's right. So hypothermia protocol is also known as targeted temperature management or TTM. So that's more of the official name. Um, for this. So for this episode, if you hear us say TTM or hypothermia protocol, we're talking about all the same thing. Yeah. So when is it used? Um, typically you'll see it with cardiac arrest patients. So someone who suffered a, a code blue or cardiac arrest, whether in the hospital or outside, you know, like at home or something, um, and they come into the hospital, they have to meet certain criteria, of course, but the purpose of it, as far as why do we do it, is to try to protect their neurological function. So of course we know that patients who have suffered a cardiac arrest, sometimes they can have brain injuries that occur just because of the, you know, a temporary lack of oxygen um, to the brain. So the hypothermia protocol is thought to protect neurological function. Um, so some contraindications as far as who is not a candidate, um, if they have some sort of uncontrolled, uh, uncontrolled bleeding somewhere, uh, like maybe they have a GI bleed or something like that, that's not well controlled. Um, if they're in shock, they're not a good candidate, or if they have um, another severe infection going on. So like if they're someone with severe sepsis and they suffer a cardiac arrest, then they're typically not a good candidate uh, for the hypothermia protocol. Yeah. So um, how does it work? That's probably the next question you're wondering. How do we actually cool someone down? Um, so patients will often have these cooling blankets, uh, which kind of look like big ice packs that we put on top of them. And so the goal is to literally cool the body temperature down um, as low as like around 89 to 96 degrees. And so the patients will stay cooled for about 24 hours, and then we slowly begin to rewarm them. And we're slowly rewarming them back to a normal body temperature. So the mechanism here is, um, it's thought to be related to the blood flow that goes up to the brain. So it's thought that we can protect the brain by reducing the amount of blood that's getting to the brain and reducing any intracranial pressure or swelling around the brain. So that's sort of the, the thought process behind it. All right. That sounds int very interesting. And I really love that you gave that picture of how they are cooled down with the ice packs. I've always actually, I've always been super curious about how that happens. So very interesting tidbit there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, it's a fairly simplified way to go about it, um, but it works. So then I'm just assuming here, but would they rewarm the patient the same way or how does, how does that work? Yeah. So um, I would say the body temperature, once you remove the ice packs, it sort of will naturally drift back upward but you may have heard of, um, sometimes they'll do this just 
like for patients in the ICU that are struggling to stay warm, not necessarily they're with, they're undergoing the hypothermia protocol, but it's sort of like a hair dryer and it blows hot air under the sheets. It's called a bear hugger, which Aww. is so cozy, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just blows warm air, um, under the sheets. And sometimes in the winter, I feel like I wish I had one of those. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Oh, I did not know any of that. Uh, you must do, be very good at, at, um, inspecting your patients in the ICU. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rule number one, just see what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> see what mm-hmm. sort of equipment we got in there. Yep. Agreed. Very cool. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. You were talking about how you slowly rewarm the patient. Yeah, how it works. And then of course my mind was going to, well, how (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. Yeah. So once, once they're rewarmed, um, then they're sort of like back to, back to quote unquote normal. Um, but the main thing is we don't want them to get hyperthermic. So it's sort of like the sweet spot that we want to get them, you know, cool for 24 hours. We warm them back up to normal. And then we just want them to maintain, essentially. Um, we don't want them to get too hot or like feverish, uh, febrile. Right. Um, so yeah. So one question that a lot of dietitians have is, can we feed? You know, or like, is it safe to feed? Because um, like a lot of the clinical treatments that we talk about or we will be talking about, it's a lot of... Um, a lot of changes happening with the patient. Oh yeah, absolutely. And not something that we typically have to consider when we're, you know, making a tube feeding recommendation. Sure. Yeah. Like is, are they hypothermic? Right. <laughs> so, um, so is it safe to feed? Um, that's kind of the big question that a lot of dietitians have and even facilities who are introducing this protocol is it safe to feed or when should feeding be started? Um, Because with most critically ill patients, we try to start tube feeding or enteral nutrition as soon as we can, as soon as possible. And so um, we know that there's a lot of benefits with doing that. So with your TTM patients or your hypothermia patients, it's sort of a different story. Um, So we know that TTM or the hypothermia process can affect GI function. Um, Interestingly, it also can have an effect on insulin resistance. And so like promoting insulin resistance, which can cause hyperglycemia. Um, It can also impact hemodynamic instability. So fluctuating blood pressures, that sort of thing um, could cause hypotension or hypovolemia. So just sort of a mixed bag here with these patients who are getting this treatment. Yeah. So many, what ifs? Exactly. Exactly. So many, what ifs? Um, so these patients are probably the textbook definition of unstable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's also a question about what are their energy requirements? Because if you think back to like nutrition 101, way, way, way back when, um, we know that patients who are febrile have slightly higher energy needs and that sort of thing. And of course, like our basal metabolic rate drives our energy needs and whatnot. 
But when everything is cooled way down, um, it's thought that patients have lower nutritional needs, Mm -hmm. which sort of makes sense. Yeah. Um, So a lot of sources will recommend that you use indirect calorimetry if you do want to feed. Problem is a lot of dietitians don't have a metabolic card or don't have any way to, to really do this. So if that's you and you don't have a way to do indirect calorimetry, um, like most dietitians, generally the recommendation is to um, estimate your energy needs at about 75% of what they, that patient would typically receive or require. Okay. So that's a good like guide, you know, it's a good, easy guide. Um, yes. Very easy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about the time to feed, like, is it okay to feed right away? Should we wait? Um, we believe that it's best to wait, um, until patients are rewarmed. So until the hypothermia period is actually complete and they've gotten back up to a normal body temperature. Um, and that's because of the issues that can occur with, you know, lower blood flow to the gut, um, the hemodynamic instability and all that sort of thing. So if you do decide to feed or maybe you start like a trickle feed, something like that, um, be aware that GI intolerance can occur um, and it can potentially occur or be more common than your regular ICU population. All right. So that being said, is there anything that we need to look for in terms of that GI intolerance, something that might be more prevalent in these folks than others? Sure. So um, a lot of facilities may still be using gastric residual volumes. And we know that that's not really a valid indicator, of course, of um, tolerance to tube feeding. So if your facility is using gastric residual volumes, try to, you know, steer everybody in away from that. Um, but just know that gastric residual volumes may be higher, but of course, better ways to assess tolerance are, you know, like looking for abdominal distension. Um, that's probably really the only one you could use in a patient who is, you know, on a ventilator, you can't really ask them like, Hey, how's your tummy feeling? (laughs) But, um, so yeah, look for some abdominal distension, Okay. you know, f- firmness, things like that. So time to get your, get your hands on your patients. <laughs> good, good. I love that. And also great to note about those um, residual volumes. They may be higher in these individuals, but also just keeping in mind um, where we stand, obviously on, you know, residuals being an indicator. So. Right. Great. Absolutely. All right. So then is it safe to say that enteral feeding may not be the right plan of care for these patients? Um, yeah, so it's a gray area <laughs> as are many things um, in the world of nutrition. But when we are looking at the research as far as with hypothermia uh, protocol patients, there's not a ton. And the research that is out there, a lot of times the studies are retrospective in design. So that means basically they did a chart review and looked back at, you know, okay, here's the 50 patients that received hypothermia protocol. 
did they receive two feeding? Did they not? And if they did, when was it started? Was it started during the hypothermia period or was it started after? And then basically looking at like, did anything bad happen? <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty rudimentary. Um, and so that limits really our understanding of what, what is appropriate or what's the best practice. Um, so just looking ahead to future research, we're really looking and waiting for more prospective research studies. So that means looking forward, um, you know, setting out to specifically target, you know, specific patients intentionally start to feeding either during hypothermia or after, and then just, you know, tracking specific um, outcomes, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So um, like I said, we know that there are benefits to providing early enteral nutrition for critically ill patients. So that's something to keep in mind. But on the flip side of that, the hypothermia period only lasts for 24 hours. So it's sort of a risk versus benefit type of scenario. You know, are we really going to see like such dramatic benefits from 24 hours of tube feeding that it's worth you know, any potential risk of intolerance or, you know, God forbid aspiration or something like that. Um, or is it just better to play it safe, chill for literally chill for 24 <laughs> hours, <laughs> um, you know, and just wait it out. And then once the patient is rewarmed, then yeah, you know, go ahead and get started with your, with your feeding. So um, the research that's out there generally points to the notion that if you are going to feed enterally, it should likely just be like a trickle feed, like a 10 to 20 cc's an hour type of deal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably where I would, where I would leave it. Um, okay. okay. Is it, is it really a, is the, do the, what can I say? I'm getting tongue tied over here. <laughs> Um, is, it, the, is the benefit worth the risk it could hold exactly. because there are so many what ifs, as you said. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's um, like you said, a great area. And, you know, I feel like we will continue to see more research in this area. Um, it just there's just not a lot to go on right now. And we're an evidence based, you know, profession. So we've got to kind of kind of sometimes the weight on that. Yeah. Um, and that being said, I mean, is there anything in the research that you've seen that indicates a specific type of formula for these particular patients? Yeah. Um, I would say that kind of gets us back into the, more into the weeds, like the research that's out there, there's no standardization of okay, they all used a standard polymeric formula or they all used a carb controlled formula or they all used whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so no, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't think that there's any cut and dry, you know, decision on that. What I would say is if you do choose to feed during the hypothermia period or, or even after um, when you do start feeding, just think about the other clinical things going on with the patient. You know, if they're have like chronic kidney disease and they're moving into renal failure, you might want to get them on a renal formula. If they are obese and so they have like higher protein needs and compared to lower calorie needs, get them on a formula that meets that 
that particular need. So I would say, I don't think there's anything unique to the hypothermia protocol in and of itself, mm -hmm. but again, just looking at what does this particular patient need and do they have any special nutrition needs? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Good sound advice there. Thanks. Until we know more. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This was very informative as usual. And I'm sure our listeners will feel, feel much more confident the next time they encounter this type of a, this type of patient. And, um, you know, hopefully maybe we'll have more information and we can do another episode in the future as we get more, more research out there on this topic. Yeah, that would be great. So, um, Hopefully this was informative. And if you want to read a little bit more about it, we actually have a blog uh, written by a critical care expert dietitian named Kim Gottesman. She's awesome. Um, and so she gets more into the nitty gritty details and the research. So you can head over to our blog, uh, dietitiansondemand.com slash blog, and just search for hypothermia protocol or um, the targeted temperature management, and you'll be able to find it. So uh, with that, we're going to sign off for today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and hopefully you'll tune in again um, and join us for another episode in the future. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review. Tell your other dietitian friends to check out Dietitians Only. Bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietitians Only, a podcast produced by Dietitians On Demand. Many years ago, we started out as a staffing company dedicated to dietitians. Today, we employ hundreds of dietitians nationwide and elevate the profession with free practice resources, amazing continuing education, dietitian-centric swag, and of course, rewarding career opportunities. Let's stay connected. Follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Dietitians On Demand on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The information on this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All content is for general information purposes only. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from or through this podcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking medical treatment because of something you heard in this podcast.